All right, everybody, welcome to another Prog Report podcast, another Prog Report Top 5. Uh, as always, if you need to catch up on previous episodes, uh, we're on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and on Podbean. Please subscribe, leave comments, give us five stars, whatever you feel like doing. And also for any news, interviews, reviews, and so on, we're always on Facebook, Twitter, and progreport.com. You know, on the Prog Report, we focus on mostly newer bands, the last sort of 25 years. That's sort of our niche. Um, but of course, it's always fun to delve back into the classics, the the biggest bands in the genre and the ones that paved the way and have all these classic albums. And uh, what inspired this one, which is going to be Genesis Top 5 Songs, is I was recently asked to read and review a great new book called My Book of Genesis, which was written by a wonderful man named Richard McPhail, who was one of their childhood friends, grew up with the, all the members of the band, and eventually became their uh, tour manager and manager all through those classic albums, and has a lot of great stories. So I am very pleased to welcome Richard, who happens to be in the States. Richard, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. No, thank you for, for you know, away from your vacation. I know you're having a good time in the States, and getting a few minutes, uh, well, a little bit more than a few minutes with us, but I think it'll be a lot of fun and, and it'll be a cool way to delve into some of the great stories that are in your book. So um, thank you. I'm, I'm yeah. excited about that. And uh, of course, so we need always need a great third guest. And this, this person has been uh, on the Park Report several times and contributed and put up with uh, me bothering him many times on, on multiple occasions. And uh, one of the best musicians, drummers in the world, uh, and actually was on a Genesis album. So happy to welcome Nick DiVirgilio back to the show. Well, how's it going, everyone? Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, so, Nick, I want to just real quickly, because I, I don't know if we've talked about it on, on any of the interviews we've done, but why don't you recap a little bit about getting involved with Genesis, uh, you know, the Calling All Stations record, and, and sort of how that came about at the time. Uh, it was, it kind of happened by chance. I knew and played with a guy named Kevin Gilbert for many years. Well, not that many years, but for a while. And I was, through Kevin, I got the gig with the band Tears for Fears. And while I was on tour over in the UK, um, I got a phone call from Kevin and he said, he told me that Phil Collins quit Genesis. And while I was in London, I should find their management office and go try and get an audition. <laughs> so... I did that. I went and I found who our hit and run was. I had a day off and I brought a Spock's Beard CD to light down there and invited all of them to come see the Tears for Fears show. And then just said, you know, if I could get an audition sometime, that'd be really great. And <laughs> I heard from Nick Davis about six months later. Well, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you played on, on like about half the record, right? With, with another guy, um, Near. Was Near. he a drummer? Near Z is his name, yes. Right, yeah, another fantastic drummer. How did you guys split up who did what? How'd that happen? Uh, they, they did that. We, I recorded everything they had, you know, all of the songs on two different occasions, really. And, um, and they had Near come in and do the same thing, and they just uh, picked what they wanted. Yeah, because one of the songs you guys play, each play a half, right? Yeah. Alien, Alien Afternoon, He, I think your first half, he's second half or something, which is... I always wondered how that happened. Uh, Richard, we're going to get to your great stories uh, as well. Tell me a little bit about what brought the, you to write the book after all these years. Well, um, 
I had a completely different career for the last 30 years. I was involved in energy efficiency and uh, solar power and all of that kind of stuff. Alternative energy, I think, is also gets referred to, yeah. although it's a lot less alternative than, uh, than, than it used to be, which is a good thing. Um, but over the years, uh, the fans always used to say to me, you know, when are you going to write your version of the story? Because, um, you know, they, they put me on their album covers um, early on. Uh, there was a picture of me on Foxtrot and they mentioned me on Trespass. And, and then their first live album, uh, cunningly entitled Genesis Live, they, uh, they actually dedicated it to me because that's when I first quit the band in, in, uh, in 1973. And I retired from my energy business in 2015. And I thought, if there's ever going to be a time for me to do this book, it is now. Because if I don't do it soon, um, goodness knows I might forget it all. <laughs> so, I, 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 and I am not—I am not a writer, and I couldn't really f feature the idea of sitting in front of a blank computer screen, you know, getting frustrated. So, um, Gail Coulson, whose name you may be familiar with, she managed Peter in the seventies. Um, I first knew her when she was Tony Stratton Smith's PA when Genesis signed with Charisma in 1970. And she's been a good friend for all these years. And uh, I was talking to her about it. And she suggested that I should get together with Chris Charlesworth. Now, I knew Chris Charlesworth from the days when he used to write for Melody Maker. And it turns out that he just retired. And so we got together and talked it through and uh, worked out, worked something out. And I essentially went down to his house uh, once a week right through the summer of 2016 and I spoke a chapter at a time which he recorded and then uh, transcribed and then it turned it into uh, the beginnings of the great work of literature that it has become. <laughs> well, I don't know what I don't know what about that you think is funny. <laughs> I I enjoyed it. I, I it was it was sort of uh, not in a bad way, but easy to read. It just kind of flowed. It, it was yes. You know, I went right right through it in a couple of days, and I just yep. couldn't put it down until it was done. And it was you know a lot of interesting stuff. One of the things I think you mentioned just about the Genesis Live, they dedicated it to you. Said, uh, but they did. They said something about um. Rich, Richard, who has left us or something, right? And it sort of gave the impression maybe you, you were dead. Unfortunate wording. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no one knows who I am, but, but, but a lot of people, whoever I am, they think I'm dead. And to be honest <laughs> with you, it was, it was almost one of the reasons I wrote the book. Right. <laughs> right. I could have called, uh, I am not dead, but I think Phil got there first. Phil stole that. Uh, Phil, so, yeah, he stole yeah, that time. But, uh, you know... Uh, okay, so let's dive in, um, and we'll we'll tell stories and talk about all the songs as we go. So what we're going to do here, because conquering just five songs from all the Genesis catalog at once is near impossible. Um, what I've done, I've taken the liberty of splitting into three eras, sort of. And and so Richard's going to take on the the Peter Gabriel era. Those albums, uh, basically, Trespass to Landlice on a Broadway, and um, and then Nick is going to do sort of the i think the first four phil led uh albums phil sung yep. albums um and then i'm going to take 
what we'll dub the 80s era, uh, Abacab through uh, We Can't Dance. And, um, and I'll, I'll throw in an honorable mention to Calling All Stations, which I'm not really <laughs> going to put in mind, but I do love that album. I don't care what anyone says about it. And uh, if I was going to pick a song, I'd pick the title track because I think it's one of the best songs uh, Genesis did. And uh, I'm a big fan of that. So I'm just going to throw that out there. That's cool. Anyway, um, <laughs> so Richard, I'm going to throw it to you first. And you're going to uh, give us your number five pick for um, the, uh, the Genesis top five. So my number five is Stagnation from uh, Trespass. Nice. And the reason I've chosen this is because, for me, it's totally evocative of the time we spent at the, the cottage. Um, uh, what happened was that I, um, my, my, uh, my parents had a cottage just south of London. Um, and even though it was only an hour from the middle of London, it, it, it was very remote in the woods, a very beautiful place. In the summer of 1969, it was broken into and burgled. And after that, not unreasonably, my mother didn't really feel comfortable going there anymore. So they were going to sell it, but they were going to wait till the springtime because of the trees and everything. They thought it would sell better. So I suddenly thought, wow, you know, this, this place is going to be empty and uh, maybe we could borrow it from them. And basically that's what happened. The parents said yes. And, uh, we moved in as a band in the autumn of 1969 and were there right through until the spring of 1970. And one of the songs that was written uh, at the cottage, and it's a classic Genesis song. It starts off with beautiful jangly 12 string guitar piece that Mike and Phillips wrote together. Um, and, uh, and then it sort of builds up and, you know, Tony has a great solo in it and everything else. But it also, interestingly, it's, um, it's, of course, Phil Collins hadn't joined the band yet. The drummer was John Mayhew. So I think it's a, it's a great representative song from that era. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible song. time Ant, I guess, started to announce that he wanted to leave, right? And and what went on there? And, and you, I guess, were instrumental in, in keeping the band going. Well, yes. I mean, the, we were fine at the cottage, but we started to do more and more gigs. I mean, while we were there, mostly Peter and I would get on the phone uh, while the others were rehearsing. We were kind of huddled around the corner in this little alcove and and phoning up people to try and generate a bit of interest in the band. And um, we got ourselves an agent. Um, I mean, a guy who acted as an agent uh, for no fee 
uh, he wanted to manage the band and the band weren't sure that he was the right guy. It was called Marcus Bicknell. But, you know, to his credit, he started getting us a few gigs. And as time went on into the spring of 1970, Aunt Phillips started to get the most terrible stage fright. And, you know, we're not talking stadiums here. You know, we were playing in clubs to 15 people and he would be <laughs> terrified out of his mind. Wow. And yeah. the stress and strain of it all um, caused him to get what we call glandular fever. I think you call it mono. And uh, he, was, he was really unwell. And he decided, he, you know, he, he told Peter um, that, that uh, he was going to leave. Now, the news came out when we played the Marquee Club um, in, in uh, Soho in London, a famous club. Obviously, everybody and their uncle have played at the Marquee. And it's an, I saw millions of bands there when I was younger. And um, uh, Peter said, Ant's going to leave. And it's, it seems strange now, but Ant really was, in terms of the direction of the band, he was the giant he was, he was far ahead as a writer and the others were all a bit discouraged, even though, you know, they'd made Trespass, it was coming out. They had the whole set up with Charisma Management, record company, everything, everything, everything was looking good. And I was astonished. Mike, Tony, Peter and I sat in the back of the van because all the gear was on the stage. And uh, after our set, and we had a kind of war cabinet. And as I said, I, it's, I suddenly caught the tone of the thing and they were all thinking, well, you can't do it without ants sort of stuff. And I, and I just said, that is ridiculous. You, we, we have to go on. You know, I know ants important, but he's not, you know, it, it, nobody's irreplaceable. And Tony said, he didn't say much at the meeting, but he said, okay, he said, I'll accept that. We, I think we should go on. But if we are going to go on, we need to get another drummer. Because John Mayhew was, was fine. But, you know, he wasn't really a drummer that uh, was up to what Genesis needed. And so, you know, long story short, as a result, we advertised for a drummer in the back of the Melody Maker, which is what everybody did in those days. And we got Phil. Yep. And we, without, <laughs> you know, I what do I, what can I say? The it seems, time, it almost seems silly now, right? That in the Phil yes. Collins answers a Melody yes. Maker ad. I mean, it seems insane. Yes, Yes, it, and it does, but yeah. that's what happened. And the <laughs> first true. time they rehearsed uh, was down at a place called Farnham in Surrey, where Mike Mike's parents lived. Mike and then I, we set up for Mike and Phil to spend a day with Mike teaching Phil the songs. And of course, Phil didn't. You know, you only had to tell him once, and he, he he got it. You know, and you know he started playing the songs. This music I knew really well, all the stuff from Trespass. And, uh, you know, with respect to all drummers, I did not believe the difference a drummer could make, a good drummer. I mean, the, the, he transformed the music. It was just, it was, well, it's not hard yeah. for you to, to, to appreciate, but I was completely gobsmacked. And in fact, it, it was so good that uh, it turned out replacing Ant was difficult. And it was some months before Steve Hackett came on the scene and it sort of completed the holy circle. And, um, we went on as a foursome and we have, we actually left Ant's amp on the stage over, you know, stage right and took a long cable and, and Tony Banks got a, a Hona electric piano with a fuzz box and used to play Ant solos with his right hand. And 
play the organ chords with his left. And, wow. and, and we did gigs for several weeks like that until finally Steve joined. Wow, that's amazing. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's stop there. Let's move on. Uh, Nick, you're number five. Well, my stories aren't going to compare at all. <laughs> I know. That's uh, that's awesome stuff you could do, we could sit here and listen to that for Absolutely, an hour. I know. Um, okay. So I, uh, this is really hard for me because uh, at this point in time when these records were, I was a huge fan of all of these records in this Phil period. Definitely with the, the Peter period too. But I thought, you speak about Phil as a drummer, um, I just thought he was on fire during these years uh, as a drummer. So good. But the first one I'm going to pick number five is actually a mellow song from um, Wind and Weathering, Blood on the Rooftops. Yeah. I thought that was, um, I think that's kind of like a fan favorite from that era. I played drums all my life, but I had to learn or at least try to play that opening guitar piece from Steve. It's just a cool, mellow, great Genesis ballad, um, killer melodies, uh, very full sounding. And uh, when the band comes in, uh, good lyrics. It's a very cool track. I think that was one of the main ones Steve wrote, if I remember correctly. That was, I think that was one of his songs. Yeah, it sounds like it, you know, because it has that whole classical yeah. guitar opening thing. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, and he, so, he brought that, he's been playing that live for a while on, on his Genesis Revisited tours, which is, yeah. uh, which is great. Richard, have you seen those uh, Genesis Revisited uh, shows? I s certainly have, uh, two or three times, in fact. Um, yeah, they're, one they're particular amazing. show uh, was, was at the Albert Hall. And uh, in fact, it it pertains to my number three. So uh, I I uh, save I that story. <laughs> that. <laughs> save that yes. story. All right, let me let me yeah. dive in on mine. So I'm gonna have a bunch of weird left field ones, and I might not go the hit route. Although they have you know dozens during the '80s period, but I you know I like the the prog year stuff, of course. And I I'm gonna try and go a little bit obscure. One of my first choice for my number five is actually one that might not be that well known it's a song called you might recall and oh, oh yeah it, it's on the studio side of the three sides live i think it was a b-side to paper laid and i actually really got familiar with the song when i got the uh, the second archives collection because i guess it just might was one that i missed but i i really always really loved that song and i think um it absolutely should have been on abacab it was from those sessions i don't know why they left it off but i imagine just because LPs maybe had not as much room those days. Yeah. Missed the cut. But I love that song. And I think uh, Phil has great vocals on it. And this is sort of this great, you know, Mike Rutherford arpeggio guitar stuff going on during the chorus, which is just very simple, but very melodic and, and just perfectly played and always rings in your mind. So I'm, I'm picking that uh, just because maybe if someone hasn't heard it, they'll check out that song because I always loved it. Oh, my hopes are on the water Just something that I 
You guys know that one? I do yep. very well. Yes. Nice. All right, great. All right, Richard, let's let's hear another great story. What's your number four? Okay, well, my number of the uh, number four is Watcher of the Skies from oh, yeah. nice. Foxtrot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it, obviously, it, back then, this used to open the show. So it was incredibly atmospheric and dramatic, the, the Mellotron opening. And, of course, it brings to mind, I mean, one of the chapters in my book I call Mellotronics because um, it, 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 was, it was such a big thing at the time. Uh, we, we, we got the Mellotron between Trespass and Nursery Crime. And it was actually Steve. Steve was a huge King Crimson fan. And uh, they used to play, it's almost like a residency for a while, at the, at the, at the, at the, the famous said Marquis on a Sunday night. Uh, with a jazz band, John Sermon, um, quite quite sort of uh, abstract sort of jazz band. And Steve just completely fell in love with King Crimson. I first saw King Crimson when they were one of the bands um, in, the, in Hyde Park with the Rolling Stones, when the Stones played in the park, just after Brian Jones had died. And it was, all, it was a very, it was a very special day, but um, and I was blown away by King Crimson, the fact that they used to start with 21st century schizoid man and that incredibly tight yeah. playing through that song. But it, wow. Steve said, we must get a Mellotron because we need to sound more sort of orchestral, etc. And eventually he, because Tony Banks is, uh, you know, he, he can be quite a stubborn guy, uh, <laughs> so, so, as can Peter. And... He didn't warm to the idea right away, but eventually uh, he he came around. And um, I remember uh, Robert Fripp came round to. It was the first time I'd met Robert. We and he, he came round to the, our, the Charisma offices, and he explained about the Mellotron. I mean, in those days, it was just this monster, huge thing with two keyboards. And frankly, you know. We, Tony would use, or any rock band would use about 3% of what the thing was capable of. But, but, but there are so many times that, you know, um, on the White Album, uh, the Beatles, Bungalow Bill, mm -hmm. there's an there's a acoustic guitar run that opens that song. Well, yeah. that's on the Mellotron. That's, that's, that's a Mellotron. Really? But, because, yeah, because there would have been one hanging about in... Um, at Abbey Road and of course yeah I mean I'm digressing but the Beatles had <laughs> huge amounts of time in the studio and no doubt they were helped along by uh, mind-bending substances of one type or another and they would find these instruments and they'd say what's this George you know and it, it was like a harpsichord or a, or a, you know it's just because those instruments are just knocking about in the studio in case anyone needs them and one of them was the Mellotron but Basically, the Mellotron had three basic sounds. It was strings, flutes, and saxophone. And you could have them on their own, or you could blend them. And, you know, you, if you listen to the music of the 60s and 70s, all sorts of people use them in various ways. And you hear it every now and again. And you go, ah, there's the Mellotron. So the thing was designed to be put in a, in a saloon bar of a pub, and somebody if you were really clever, you could just be like an entire orchestra or jazz band or whatever it is you wanted to do with all of these different sounds. 
And, you know, it, was, it, it, it wasn't, I don't want to go on too long. It was analog <laughs> tape. It was pieces of tape with the notes recorded onto them. Right. And you, you hit the key and, the, and the, the thing dropped down and the tape ran over the head and you got eight seconds. And when you let it go, it sprang back and then you could use it again. So it was it, the way Tony Banks is, you know, he took this thing and he just really created some, some magic with it. So th that's why I would choose Watcher of the Skies because it's so evocative of, the, of that time, the nursery crime and foxtrot era. And, and also another thing about the song is the lyrics were written, written by Mike and Tony. Believe oh. it or not, I, I, which is unusual because obviously Peter used to write a lot of the lyrics, but not all. And of course, that was a bit of a portent of things to come because uh, obviously Mike and Tony got into writing uh, lots of lyrics later. That's my oh, yeah. number four. I love that song. I mean, I th everybody, a New Genesis fan, that's an all-time classic. And I, the drumming on that also is... Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Some of the greatest drumming ever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. So. Well, yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, Nick, you guys, for, from Spock's Beard, you guys had your share of Mellotron moments, for oh, sure. Oh, that's a classic prog progressive rock instrument. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's everywhere. Yeah. So, uh, great. Well, that's awesome. Um, okay, Nick, you're number four. Uh, a very cool song. Uh from Duke, uh, second side, if you thinking in LP terms, the song Cul-de-Sac. Yeah. Um, killer Tony Banks tune. Yeah. Sort of mm -hmm. poppy, but they played it so heavy. And that's when Phil's drum sound was starting to change and yep. starting getting into that, you know, in the air tonight sort of Hugh Padgham thing a little yep. bit. And so the sounds are huge. Killer Melody, one of Phil's best singing performances, I think, ever. Mm -hmm. I like the way he sings it. And the chord changes and everything in that tune from uh, that Tony wrote was, uh, I, I was singing along to that in the car drive from home just this afternoon. And I still remember every lyric. Right. And I haven't listened to the song probably in, I don't know, five, six years or something. That album is full of just gems like that. There's, totally. there's, not, yeah. there's not a bad song on it. You could go a million different ways. Totally. Yeah, so that's my... Yeah, favorite. really. I mean, Behind the Lines, I think it's just awesome it's stuff. Deep. I know. It's Phil's, yeah. Phil's it's hard drumming to and singing on that. Yeah. Are yeah. Just top of the... Fantastic. Yeah. I agree. After all,
Nice choice. Okay, so I'm going to stay for my number four, sort of in the Abacab uh, world, um, but one from the actual album, uh, one of my all-time favorite Genesis songs, uh, the weird sort of quirky Keep It Dark. Yeah. Which um, just, uh, man, that's a great song. I love the strangeness of the lyrics and, and uh, the sort of off-time signature thing about how the song begins. The sounds were getting so big then, too. I mean, all the synth stuff that was... That made yeah. that sound so huge sounding well, along with those big giant drums. It was, uh, it was a cool time period. Their sound was really morphing into something cool then. Yeah, that's the album that, where they really sort of did away with acoustic guitar almost altogether. I'm not sure there, if there is any on the album at all. And uh, it was the 80s, so they were doing yeah. it, they were doing it, you know, being hip to the time period for sure. Yeah, but they, yeah. but you know, they found a lot of ways to still be. Yeah. different and above uh, what everyone else was doing. I, I mean, I can't think of another band that would have written a song like Keep It Dark that, you know, from that era at all. So, um, yeah, that's that's another one of my favorites. my number four all right richard your number three okay well you probably wouldn't be too surprised by this but my number three i'm going back an album this is the musical box oh well. um, yeah and you know it's obviously an absolute genesis classic and i one of the stories i tell in my book um which by the way if you don't mind me saying is called my book of genesis and it's available on amazon.com Absolutely. as a book kindle and very soon an audio book, which I just finished recording uh, before we left England. So uh, that's going to be available in uh, uh, a few weeks. It's quite interesting. You know, I, I never done anything like that before. And I thought, what could be so difficult? You know, just just sit down in front of a microphone and read your own blooming book. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's a very hard thing to do. <laughs> You know, I'd be getting into it, sort of moving, and he'd stop the thing and say, you you hear your shirt rustling, you know, and all of this. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God, never again. I clearly do not have a, a future as, as, as a voiceover artist. Please, I'll leave it to the professional actors. But anyway, <laughs> right, I did get it done. So, yeah, the musical box is um, – uh, well, the thing is that, that – what used to happen is that when there weren't gigs, uh, which was, wasn't that often, we, we, at this point we were gigging probably five nights a week. But on so-called days off, I would set the gear up in one or other of the various uh, rehearsal studios that we used to use. And um, one of them was uh, the, a guy called Rod Mayle, who's the brother of John Mayle. And he'd been in Flaming Youth with Phil. So that's why we knew that he had a rehearsal space. And I'd set the gear up at half past nine in the morning and the band would show up. 
they'd start writing and, and playing and rehearsing and whatever. And I'd go off and, and to get the microphones repaired or buy new drumsticks or more tambourines. I mean, we, we didn't have two brass farthings to rub together, but Peter didn't stop Peter smashing up his tambourines and usually a microphone every, every other gig. So I had to go off and get these things fixed and guitar strings and whatever. And then one day I got back to the rehearsal room about four or 4.30 or five. And uh, they all, they were all looking a bit smug. And I, they said, um, listen, sit down. We've got something to play you. We just finished a song. And I sat down and they played me the musical box. And, uh, you know, I, I was just in tears by the end of it, especially that it's got the most incredible climax and ending. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, of course, the, the, the fans took to it just completely from the get-go. And, and it was just always a brilliant live song. And that's where the, the Steve Hackett uh, Genesis Revisited thing comes in because it, it, I just went to the Albert Hall and Steve and Joe very generously got Maggie and I a ticket in the box. We were sitting with Steve's brother, who John, he's a wonderful flute player. And... Um, they played the musical box and the, the band, the audience just went bonkers. And there I was thinking, Jesus Christ is 40 years later and it's, it's still having the same effect. You know, he was really what, keeping that old music alive in a great way. Absolutely. I love that. And he's got a great bunch of musicians that, you know, he's got really good people. I mean, I, I always, I always say about tribute bands that, you know, they stand or fall on their drummer because Lots of people, you know, can play the key. They can learn the keyboard parts, the guitar parts. But, you know, to really sound anything like Genesis, you've just got to have a really good drummer. And amazingly, there are lots of, thankfully, good ones around. So, <laughs> so yeah, uh, you know, present company not accepted. So this is, uh, the, that's my number three. And a merry old soul was he So he called for his pipe And he called for his bowl And he called for his fiddlers three The clock Tick-tock On the mantelpiece and I want, and I feel, and I know, and I touch. Yeah, that's one of my all-time favorite songs. I, seeing it live, it just gets you so... The ending is just so powerful. It's the most powerful live song I think I've ever seen. It really yeah. just has that incredible effect on you when you see it. And the other thing, of course, I should say is that that's the song International Stadium in Dublin, where Peter went off during the instrumental section in the middle and came back on stage for the first time with the red dress and the fox's head. That's right. And yeah. Completely blew everybody's mind. If you could have seen, <laughs> if you could have seen Tony's face. You know, but the thing is, of course, the house, they just brought the house down. So, because if he'd said, by the way, guys, I'm thinking of, um, you know, red dress, 
Tony Banks, he just he just would have refused. He said, right. I'm leaving the band if you do that. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. But he, he, he never, but Pete, that's the way Peter knew he had to do it. It was all or nothing. And of course, Tony after that couldn't argue. So uh, <laughs> the next thing we get is uh, Peter dressed up as a sexually transmitted disease, <laughs> as a slipper man. You know, and, it, and ever, we, none of us thought it was ever going to go quite that far. But uh, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So. That's amazing. I, that's one of the stories that that I really it hit me when when I was reading your book was that moment when they show you the musical box for the first time, and yeah. I'm thinking to myself, imagine being the person that heard this song for the first like the first person to ever hear it. That's yeah. an amazing. I can't imagine being that. That's that's no. very lucky. That's awesome. I, I am very lucky, and I don't ever forget it. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, Nick, you're number three. Uh, my number three comes from the album, and then there were three, which is it's right up there with one of my favorites they ever did. Yeah. You could hear you could hear the excitement in the guys as a three piece trying to do their thing, and I absolutely love it. So that my song is "The Lady Lies." Yep, it's sort of a classic. It's very progressive, you know. It's uh, the tip end, and one cool thing, you know, I grew up loving hard rock as well, even though I'm such yep. a kid, and that record really rocks. Uh, it's very aggressive sounding, even the ballads, you know, and um, the drumming on that record, on that song is killer. Good story, very typical, probably they go all over the place. And uh, it's, um, it's just one of my favorites. They used to nail that song live too. If you ever heard some of their old recordings, they would yep. play with Chester playing and everybody, they would really kick that song in the butt. It's cool. Yep. Going back to Phil, underrated, some of his drumming on this album, is insane and um like on down and out on the the first track that drum beat is really ridiculous just to, to think of doing those drum beats the things that he was thinking of doing at the time were so advanced i thought and yeah. um and i there's a bunch of great songs on the album it is it's, it is one of their best albums For my number three, I'm going to jump to, I guess we'll call it the last Genesis album with the with the lineup, the, the main three-person lineup with Phil. As the final track, the long epic Fading Lights, which yep. um, that album sort of is a weird album because some of it is, they bring back a little bit of the proggy stuff and some of it is super pop and, and could, could have been Mike and the Mechanics albums and stuff. So it's sort of a weird combination of everything that everybody from the band was writing or doing at the time but i like fading lights a lot for the obviously the the long instrumental section in the middle which sort of is i felt like putting that as the last song and i think maybe they knew it might have been the last album even though they they don't say at the time that they knew but uh calling back to the 
to the old 70s classic solo stuff and and uh, and bringing that back a little bit and um, and tying everything together. Plus, Phil's vocals and lyrics are, are very touching and moving throughout that song. And um, it, it had, I'm glad that they found a way to, to put another long epic back in the, the catalog there. I enjoyed it. You know, that was that when that, that stuff came out, it was like right in my end of my high school years. I got to go see them play that on that tour at Dodger Stadium, my first ever gigantic, epo, epic, you know, Enormo show um, with the screens moving and filling. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was, it was cool. I think it has its moments. I think it's, you know, it's they were just doing their thing. And uh, it's yeah. weird to have that, uh, that song on the Sam as I Can't Dance. Like how they, they found a way to put all that stuff together, which yeah. could, it, it really, it's like two completely different bands. But that's that's just where they were at the time, and and yeah. as big as any anything. I mean, it was they were crazy. they were the, one of the biggest band in the world at that time. I mean, yeah. you, yep. And you know, these are the days of our lives. So Richard, when you listen to the We Can't Dance album or something, coming from being there when they were writing Musical Box, how, what's yeah. your sort of perspective on, on the difference? Well, I, it probably won't surprise you to, to, if I say it's it's not my favorite era. You know, I don't know. Uh, it doesn't particularly pertain to this last choice, but um, I remember in it, reading an interview that Mike gave a long time ago. and Someone essentially said, why do you write such long songs? And, you know, Mike, Mike is very, uh, somebody described him as uh, lazily perceptive, which he, which, he, which he is. And he said, very honestly, he said, well, short songs are very difficult. And, you know, he's right. You know, you think of the Beatles and ABBA, those hits, those short songs, and they're absolute works of genius. And, you know, they, they basically, as you well know, I'm sure, that uh, Genesis used to, the, the, everybody would come up with what they call bits. Right. And, and they would sit down to rehearse and someone would say, well, I've got this bit, you know, and this is like this, this guitar thing or a chord sequence. Or, and then someone else would say, well, I, I've, I've got this bit, you know. And, and one of the cleverest things is, is that Tony Banks, being a classically trained musician, you know, he knew he, he had incredible, well, Steve Hackett called him the chord king. And he was the guy who things together and make them flow together in a really beautiful way so that's one of the things that makes them very special you know so, i mean i'm inevitably going to be uh, lean towards the, <laughs> the the era that you've asked me yeah no absolutely no, well i would not going to be would, a surprise to anybody no i would think so leading into then your number two choice my number two okay well it's uh from the lamb it's uh 
fly on the windshield. Oh, killer. And, um, yeah. I mean, Tony Banks said, I interviewed all of the band for, for the book, except for Peter, actually. Peter wrote the foreword, and he wrote a really beautiful foreword, and I'd be I'm ever grateful to him for that. But uh, when I was talking to Tony, he said that it, it, at that moment, it's one of his most favorite Genesis moments is the big, the big bang on yeah. in fly on a windshield, you know, as the fly hits the windshield and, and the great moment, you know, uh, everything goes crazy. And, um, it, it, it is just staggering. So it's just still brings, you know, the hair stand up on the back of my neck when I hear it, even to this day. And, and Peter's lyrics are just brilliant. You know that the and it, it is it's just a it's just a great moment and and it, and you know of course the lamb was not an easy um, time uh, Peter was really struggling with being married having a child and all of that and in fact um, he sort of was showing signs of wanting to leave and Tony Stratton Smith came down they were down in. Uh, on a farm in Wales with a mobile recording unit. And um, he, but Strat basically persuaded Peter to stay. And and because of that, they, they managed to complete the lamb. But, you know, it's no secret that there was the band and there was Peter and, uh, yeah. and they were working on the music and he was writing the lyrics. And Peter has never found lyric writing easy. Um, you know, I mean, everyone's heard the story probably when Daniel Lanois lock, locked him in. The, well, he didn't lock him. He nailed him into a, into the <laughs> studio. He got a piece of wood and he got the roadies to give him two nails and a hammer. And he just said, I'm going to nail you in until and not let you out until you've completed the lyrics for X, Y, Z, whatever it was, the song. Because he's always got lots of songs on the go um, and the lyrics always come later. I mean... I would always maintain that his lyrics are worth waiting for. But, you know, the, the, the whole thing was his concept. He wrote all the lyrics for that. And the fact that it burgeoned into a double album and was late, and, you know, they went on the road, did, did the thing the band should never do, which is go, go on tour with your album, not in the shops. You know, I mean, it was just a recipe for disaster. <laughs> so as faithful as the fans were, you know, they were listening to this stuff that they'd never heard before. And, and with Peter doing all these crazy costumes and all the rest of it, and really they were wondering what the hell it was all about. But of course, in the middle of it all, there's an awful lot of incredible music. But, totally. you know, I could have chosen, for instance, Riding the Scream. I actually did choose that. And then I crossed it out and decided to put Fly on a Windshield. So, you know, um, it, 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 it's it's... It's flawed. The Lamb is a flawed album, and but it's still a great one for all that. So that's my number two. The wind is blowing harder now, blowing dust into my eyes. The dust settles on my skin, making a crust I cannot move. And I'm hovering like a fly. Waiting for the windshield on the freeway
Yeah, I mean, Nick, you did a whole remake of the entire album at one point, right? So uh, what did you learn from, from recreating these songs? That it's very cool songwriting. You break down some of these really elaborate tunes like In the Cage, yeah. um, Slipperman, uh, and Back in New York City and stuff. And you'll find that the chord progressions can be really simple. It's just the way these guys, uh, you know, uh, just played the parts and the life they gave them. So some really cool tunes when you really dove into learning all the really nitty gritty parts. Uh, some guy, it's one, it's such an awesome record for that kind of thing. Yeah. No, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Nick, you're number two then. Well, this is a really tough thing to pick five. I mean, I love all <laughs> of so much. Um, I'm going to go to trick of the tail. I tried to pick something from every record. Sure. Uh, that you gave me trick of the tail robbery assault and battery yeah um yeah. again well, i grew up as when i was you know from probably 10 to well to this day but around that time period i was just i i consumed anything phil collins played drums on and including these records like every day i was seriously <laughs> it was a passion for a while and his drumming and it was really starting to his fusion period, you know, he was doing lots of really cool stuff, but all in this, and it was just always also groovy. So you took this really cool fun, fun tune where he's almost playing like a disco beat for a bunch of it. Still trying to be progressive and uh, really cool lyrics and, and uh, the way he sang. It's a lot of fun. I love this tune. The old middle section, that's the keyboard solo thing that Tony plays in the middle is, is I don't, I've never seen anybody else be able to play that correctly. So, yeah. Richard, what do you remember from that time of, you know? Well, I was just thinking um, about you saying how you consumed everything that Phil did. It, it made me think about Brand X. And, oh, gosh, yeah. you know, because they were an amazing band. And they mean, were. Percy, Percy Jones is just one of the great bass players. Unsung, I have to say, I think. True, you know, uh, very true. Yeah. What I love is that, you know, there were no boundaries for Phil, you know, and and he would take what he learned, if you like, playing that kind of music with Brand X and, and bring it to Genesis. And, and, sure. and it, it really, really enriched their music, I think. Yeah, most definitely. My second choice. This is one of my favorite albums. It was really the beginning for me, uh, my introduction into Genesis, because the classic albums were created a little before, before, or during my my very toddler years, and uh, so the self-titled album or the Genesis album, however you want to call it, is one of my all-time favorite albums. Uh, I think it's uh, an amazing record. Um, even though it has that 80s sort of feel to it. But it goes, so going from that, I'm picking uh, Home by the Sea, and I'm yep. going to slash it with Second Home by the Sea because, you know, we'll make that one song. But um, they just had a unique way of, of lyric writing and, and writing things that were different and original and not 
cliched. Um, and Tony Banks at that time was just always incorporating new and, and unique sort of keyboard sounds. And uh, I just, I, I love everything about, uh, about that album, but especially these, these uh, two tunes and the whole instrumental section is uh, just one of their best moments for me from that era. And live too is so incredible. Yeah, you know, for, on those later tours, it just went down so well. Really. Yeah, I mean, I mean that whole album for me, it's it's it is it is a little bit of a different style band, but it there's sort of the classic albums, you know, Nursery Crime, Foxtrot, Selling England by the Pound, and whatever. And and this one is maybe parallel for me, you know, not better or worse, but equal on it's sort of a different wavelength, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that uh, it, it has this very special place for me, that album. Okay, so Richard, back to your number one, which I'm really nervous <laughs> now. How did you just choose one more? Yeah. Actually, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of trouble choosing this. You mentioned selling England by the pound, so my number one is the cinema show. Nice. Um, and it's it it is so much I could say about it. It's such a classic um, Genesis song, starting with the guitars and. The, just the really lyrical Peter's beautiful lyrics about Romeo and Juliet and his chocolate surprise, you know, it's full of humor and, and it is just a complete classic song of two halves, you know, just on the day that the world cup started, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar. This is a, this is a, there's a dreadful cliche that soccer managers come out with in, in, in uh, British football when they're, when they're talking about a game, you know, and the soccer manager will say, well, you know, it was a real game of two halves. And, uh, well, yes, actually. But anyway, <laughs> it, it, that, that, that's what cinema show is, because halfway through, yeah. you know, they just go into this thing. And there's Mike doing this wonderful, uh, fantastic, fast drumming guitar. Phil's drumming, again, is just sublime. And Tony Banks is... He's just totally killing it. And there's a wonderful moment when the bass pedals come in because, oh, yeah. you know, Mike, they didn't really have a bass player. You know, it's sort of crazy, but but they made it work really well. And the moment when the bass pedals come in and then there's that incredible, I mean, it, it, it is basically, it's Romeo and Juliet having sex. That's what that is. That's that, that, uh, I may be wrong, but that's my interpretation. And there's a climatic moment. And 
one of the stories I tell in my book, I actually wasn't working with them, but they were on the road to doing this album and they were about to go on tour in America. Their, um, their, their biggest tour to date by, by a long way. And the lighting guy, who's called Les Aidy, um, his, I won't go into the whole story, but basically he was busted a week before the tour started and he couldn't do the tour. And I was sort of busy doing other things, but not sort of, you know, impossibly tied up. And they, either they needed to get somebody who knew about lights but didn't know the music, or vice versa. They needed someone who knew the music, but who could learn about the lights. And they thought, well, Rich could do it. So they asked me if I would go with them, and I did. And, you know, they used, they used to use Shoko for, out of Dallas, you know, for sound and lights. And I did the first show and the guy at the end said, I need you, to, I need to teach you how to do a crossfade. Because <laughs> I just sort of switch one lot off and switch the other lot on and it looked dreadful. But I got better at it. And, and my favorite thing in the whole show was in the cinema show when it reaches that climactic moment because there's just three of them on stage. Phil and Pete, uh, Steve and Pete have gone. And, and, uh, they had these really bright white, directly vertical. It was almost like a precursor to the classic, you know, the white lights straight Second down out. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 at that very moment, you know, I switched everything off and just those white lights, and it was a brilliant effect. It looked, it really did look great. And and it is just a, a absolutely wonderful piece of music. And again, the way the way Tony uses you know, the synthesizer and then the organ and then the Mellotron and the bass pedals, the whole thing. It's just quite, it's a fantastic one. So, you know, yeah. if you sent me away to a desert island and said you could only ever have one Genesis song again, I think, you know, it would, if it wasn't Supper's Ready, it would have to be Cinema Show. I mean, imagine you have this list of five songs that you picked, which no one on earth could argue with, and it doesn't even have Suffers Ready. I know. And, and that's, know. that's how incredible. Oh, can the, I change my mind? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, but but that, the, the part that you're talking about, that's the uh, sort of the where Tony Banks is doing that simple solo, that da na 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 Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So yeah. that that so there's favorite songs that I have, and then there's just favorite moments of songs that I have. Yeah. And that part is one of my all-time favorite moments. It's one of my ringtones on my phone. It's that part. Yeah. I can't argue with that choice, but I'm sure Supper's Ready is maybe five A or you know number six it, for you. It. I know. I know. <laughs> but um, so, uh, all right, Nick, you're number one. Well, you mentioned this song earlier, and uh, I have to pick it uh, because, again, it just it exudes everything that the band was doing at the time and their musicianship at the time, and it's down and out from, and then there were three. Yeah. yeah. It, what a song is on fire, man. Phil is singing like a, uh, like a monster there. His voice is so powerful, and um, it's, a, it's a rocking tune, and that drum beat is is serious it's a serious deal it's a heavy duty tune and um it just gives me so much energy when i listen to it so that i love that record and i thought that was a you know a different choice because again there's a million tunes i could choose a dance on a volcano a squonk uh yep. anything trick of the tail probably you know um geez there's such after yeah yeah these are a lot of these are sort of left left field choices for for most people but they're incredible songs it's like i was saying i mean you, you can't it's none not. of these songs you could you know, want to kick out and then you still have all these amazing songs that, that you didn't even pick. So, right. Uh, no, I really dig that tune. Though. I yeah. think it's, it's very enjoyable for me here. No, I agree. I mean, that's what I, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about, they were, you know, get going away from the prog era, but that song alone is prog, proggy in every way. That whole record. Is, is very, yeah. Is, it's still a very much a prog record. Just, it has a little, it has a little bit of that rock and roll. It has a little angst to it. I think that yeah. record and uh, in a very good way. Good to be here, how y'all been? Check my back, boy, where's my room? I sit on the phone, that's my game. Keep up the pressure on the way. I don't wanna be about the bush. But none of us are getting any younger. There's people not So if you look at my list, uh, one thing by the end is going to be noticed that I don't have a song from Invisible Touch on my list. And uh, I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to stay with that. I'm not having a song from Invisible Touch on my list. Um, my number one is going to be Mama from the self-titled album again. Yeah. And um, I, that's in my all-time favorite Genesis songs. Easy. It's extremely powerful everything about it the build up at the end um phil's vocals the haunting chords the every you know the whole thing is um it, it's dark it's ominous it's it's heavy it's um but the way it builds at the end is so powerful and his screaming is it just it sets the hairs on your arms up so that that was when I was picking my five, I right away, I knew that was going to be my number one before I even filled out the rest of my list. And I ended up looking at my list and I said, well, I don't have any Invisible Touch songs on here, but I just couldn't find one to put. I, and I don't hate that album. I just didn't, I couldn't find a song to put on in my top five out of any of these. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. That's I, okay. I mean, this is an impossible game. Let's, let's Totally, let's... yeah. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
you know, you guys have chosen some fantastic songs and it's it's really good the thought you put into it and I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. It's really cool to see this when I, I'm writing these down as you guys are doing the, the choices. I mean, when you look at it, it would be such a cool best of just these. You know, yeah. it's, it's such an eclectic mix of uh, material. It really goes sort of all over the place and um, uh, really, really cool, really interesting. So that's part of the book, which I want to just touch on before, before we let you go, and uh, it, it doesn't just end with the Genesis period because then you had a, a long period working with Peter Gabriel, right? So right. talk a I, little bit about that. Well, um, after, after Peter left, after the Lamb, uh, he took what, now would be called a gap year you know he basically you know he he walked right out of the machinery as he said in salisbury hill yeah and he his first daughter had been born and then melanie who sang with peter later um she came along and basically he just wanted to be with his family down in the countryside outside bath and uh be, being a dad and growing vegetables and exploring lots of other things, you know, lots of aspects of his spiritual life. And I was kind of always part of that. And, um, uh, and w then, you know, he, he made what has be become known as car, his first, first self-titled, <laughs> annoyingly self-titled <laughs> right. uh, solo albums. And, um, you know, uh, and then, of course, inevitably, the, the talk was of a tour. And he and I were talking on the phone. And, and uh, basically, I think he was quite nervous about it, not not unreasonably. Uh, he was he didn't know how it was going to go down. Salisbury Hill hadn't been released. It wasn't a hit yet. And he said he'd, he'd, he'd really love, love to have me along. So so I did and uh, dusted off the old briefcase and out we went. And we had another couple of years of uh, great adventures together, including getting arrested as terrorists in Switzerland, which which is one of the chapters in the book. And, <laughs> I'm gonna have and, to get the book. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what you meant to say. So yeah, I mean it it it, it was amazing, and I, I also had uh, talk about my outings. Well, firstly with Brand X, I did their first American tour without Phil. Uh, with a drummer, I don't know if you know him. He's he's, he's called Kenwood Denard, Woody. I know him very well. He's a killer drummer. Yeah, yeah, he's a fantastic drummer. And and he he um, after the first show, perfectly understandably, he went out and got a T-shirt made with "Where's Phil" in very large letters on the front. <laughs> because that's all. That's all anyone said to him. But poor guy. <laughs> he did a great job. Uh, and then Peter Hamill from Vandergraaf Generator, I did a couple of tours with, right. one over here and one in Europe. And then um, uh, and Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen was the last tour I did. But uh, again, that's all in the book. Very, very interesting of you, of you to, to have done. You've done a lot in this. I have. <laughs> it's quite, quite an uh, amazing amount of stories in I've the book. A full and, and rich life. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for all your contributions to the Genesis, uh, you know, archive, I guess we'll call it. Well, you're very um, welcome. You're and very welcome. Uh, so uh, again, Nick, I also want to give you a, a shout out because the new Spock's Beard is out, which uh, yes. you are on, uh, Noise Floor, which is uh, just awesome. Uh, any Spock's Beard fans pick up, it's the 13th album. What else you got going on? 
I got uh, two big, big train shows coming up in July. One in Basingstoke, you know, south of London there as a warm-up well. <laughs> And uh, at the Anvil, as it's called. And then we're playing at Lorelei, the uh, night okay. of the prog. We're headlining. Oh, Friday night. that's an amazing place. Yeah. yeah. So I'll play that on July 13th. I'll be playing that show. And, and lots of uh, train stuff coming in the future. A live DVD in November. And then another record in 2019. We're working on it now, but it'll be released sometime in 2019. Awesome. Big, big train. Another amazing band. One of my favorites. So happy to, happy to see that happen. We still need a U.S. show, Nick. You gotta make That's that. it all in the cards. Believe me. Gotta, gotta make that happen. Uh, all right, cool. So we got a lot to uh, recap. Uh, my book of Genesis by our friend Richard McPhail is out on uh, Amazon. Look for it and uh, read these, this great book. You got Spock's Beard Noise Floor and Big, Big Train shows to, uh, to catch up on. Guys, thank you so much for uh, giving me an hour of your time on this. This was, this was a dream for me to do and, and talk about all this stuff. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Really right. enjoyed it. Yeah, Richard, and enjoy the rest of your time in the U.S. and the safe trip back home. Thank you. Thank all right, you Nick. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Thank you. All the best. Bye, Bye. Nick. Bye-bye, Richard. Bye.